That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, JDK Winnekin. <laughs> I love that a whole lot of other things. Uh, it's, it's true, and I'm really, I'm really fortunate that that is true. Uh, anyway, welcome to another episode of this show. is all about you. Thank you so much for taking the next hour to spend with me uh, as we talk about some things that uh, maybe we stop and think about or even have conversations about. But it's an opportunity to dig a little deeper. Thanks for joining me. Uh, if you're listening live, uh, welcome. Drive carefully. And uh, if you're listening as a podcast, thank you so much for subscribing and for leaving me a review. I appreciate it. You can uh, find out more about me at my website, wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-I-N-E-K-E-N. You should be able to find me quite easily. Would love to chat with you. Thanks at the outset to this show's generous sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth uh, by exploring all the possible uh, outlets that are available in aviation and aerospace. You'll hear more about them during the show breaks today, but you can also check them out uh, at your convenience at airsci.org. So make sure you do that. Thanks to them. All right. Uh, It is October 24th today, 2022. And I don't normally necessarily timestamp my episodes, but today, just because of how the day has gone, um, it's been a very interesting morning to get to this uh, show, uh, an afternoon, I should say. Uh, but before I explain why that is and why I'm stamping the day today, let's do our weekly recap of the important news in a segment that you all know as What in the World is Going On? <laughs> I think Herson is the big story at the moment. And we've seen even the Russians saying over the last couple of weeks how they're pulling out their, their civilians from Herson, which, remember, they claimed to have annexed only on the 29th of September uh, three weeks ago. But overnight, the Ukrainian general staff has pointed out that they are tracking now the Russians beginning to withdraw their most valuable military equipment, a sure sign that they are planning to give up their hold on the West Bank. And that's going to be difficult to... That, of course, referring to uh, Russia's continued setbacks in their invasion of Ukraine. And that's part the discussion about what's happening in the southern part of the Ukrainian counteroffensive around the, uh, the city of Kyrgyzstan, a, a city of about 300,000 before the war. It was one of the first cities captured by the Russians when the war began eight months ago. And the Ukrainians are in the process of uh, pretty much taking it back. Uh, the, the city's on a river, and so it requires a massive evacuation that uh, the Russians had to build some pontoon bridges to get people out because the Ukrainians had destroyed earlier ones to prevent military assets from from being able to retreat. So now that civilians are being moved, heavy equipment's being moved, it is clear to anyone who is watching, regardless of what comes out of the official um, uh, propaganda of the Kremlin, 
that the Russian army is retreating out of Kherson. And that is a very big deal, uh, not just in terms of morale. That's the first city that was taken. It's now being taken back. But strategically, it's very, very important because Kherson is the gateway to all the different supply routes that the Russians are trying to use to supply the southern part of their offensive and to keep Crimea connected uh, to the rest of what is happening. And it sure looks like the U- Ukrainians not only are trying to take back territory outside of Kharkov in the east but and also Kherson in the south, but to effectively isolate Crimea even more. Uh, Ukraine has made very clear that they are not going to uh, sign any peace with Russia until they get all of their territory back, which includes those four areas, including Kherson, that were illegally annexed by Russia a couple of weeks ago, and also Crimea, which uh, was taken by the Russians against uh, international law of all forms back in 2014. Meanwhile, in Russia, the, uh, the forced mobilization of largely unwilling young men to fight continues, and uh, the war is coming home to more and more Russians uh, as each day goes by. The degree to which that will put pressure on Putin remains to be seen. Uh, he certainly still seems locked in his tower, so to speak. Um, but uh, things are not looking good for Russia on the ground uh, and certainly are looking upward for Ukraine. Uh, there are a lot of really important things coming up in coming weeks that I will be digging, to, digging into in subsequent shows that will be worth thinking about. But for right now, things look much better for Ukraine than they do for Russia. Meanwhile, protests in Iran are entering their sixth week. Overseas, there were demonstrations across Europe today calling for an end to Iran's autocratic regime. The biggest was in Berlin. Tens of thousands protested in the German capital, filling it with the colors of Iran's flag and chanting women, life, freedom. Crowds also marched in the U.S. This is Los Angeles. Weeks of protests have followed the death of Iranian Masha Amini in police custody. She'd been arrested for violating the country's strict dress code. When a movement stays strong for weeks at a time, it has a tendency to start pulling in support from outside of its original confines. That is what appears to be happening. Now, we can have a lot of different debates about the effectiveness of protests in far-flung cities like Berlin and Los Angeles, and yet tens of thousands of people showing up in both locations to protest against the Iranian government uh, is significant. And there were the protests in Europe were in dozens of cities. That one just mentioned Berlin. Uh, there are a number of Iranian nationals who live abroad. That has been the case for a very long time, even before the 1979 Islamic Revolution, but certainly since then. And as I've talked about previously on this show, the longer this goes, the more international support that these women running these protests uh, are going to get. And that that all together starts putting together pieces that can lead to a larger crescendo of pressure on the regime. The regime is still towing the same lines that they have been towing for weeks, showing they have no real idea of how to act any differently than they already have. They're essentially blaming the United States and Israel, as they always do, uh, for these problems. And uh, all that's doing is further adding fuel to the fire of these protests because these people clearly know that they are not being seen, considered, treated well by their government. And all it's doing is fueling that. So that continues. And it will be very interesting to see uh, where the crescendo actually comes and what it looks like. Okay. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, if that's what's going on in the world, there's plenty more going on. But uh, let's launch into today's topic. Uh, 
I had to call an audible, as they say, in uh, sports parlance this morning. I had a guest lined up who had to back out because of illness this morning. And so uh, this morning I was scrambling to figure out, well, what am I going to cover today? And so when that happens, and it happens rarely, but when that does happen, uh, I call upon uh, my friend Julia Cannell, uh, who also runs Airway Science for Kids. Uh, you know, it's always good to talk to the sponsor for ideas. <laughs> she also is just really good at these things. And uh, she just sat down on Google and looked up today's date, October 24th. And we found some amazing stuff, or accurately, she found some amazing stuff. And it got me thinking about these are the things that <laughs> maybe we need to talk about today because there's a lot that has happened in the history of humanity on October 24th. And for the sake of time, I'm going to just talk about ones that have happened in about the last hundred years. Uh, but there are some pretty significant ones. And it got me thinking, looking at this, that, man, we have 365 of these kinds of days every single year. Obviously, that's quite a, that's an obvious statement, right? But nevertheless, we certainly, I certainly at least, don't look into what may have happened on any given date. I certainly do, like, on my birthday or other people's, you know, that, that type of thing. But uh, very rarely do I ever stop and take a look. And when we consider how long we've all been here, Pretty much you can assume any date of the year is going to have significant uh, dates on it, significant uh, moments in time. Some might seem a little more significant than others, and October 24th is one of those. Okay, So I want to talk a little bit about the day today as a way to perhaps give us a chance to reflect on what do we notice and what do we not notice uh, going by and happening around us uh, in the present, and, and how well do we remember that uh, going forward, and what does that mean for us, and what can we do with that? Uh, so, anyway, uh, it's also interesting, because this is a very, if you look at days other than this day, there's a lot that's going on at the end of October, and one of the things that goes on at the end of October for me is, so many people I know, good friends, have birthdays in the last part of October, including aforesaid Julia Cannell, October 30th, happy birthday, Julia, uh, <laughs> Advance. Um, I'm usually the person who's late on birthdays, so I'm very, very happy to get that in early. So happy birthday, Julia. But a lot of people I know uh, have birthdays this week. Do the math. You can figure it out. <laughs> people get bored in January. It's cold. It's dark. <laughs> there's, a, there's fun things to do, and that's how people get babies. You're welcome, everyone. Uh, cover the ears of anybody who you feel you need to cover the ears for there. But nevertheless, let's talk a little bit about uh, October 24th. All right. So what are some things? Well, the, the first thing that uh, I'm just going to go down the quick list, actually. Uh, and I'm going to talk about a few of these. Uh, but one of the I'm going to start off with a story of the October 24th, 1934, McRobertson Trophy Air Race. So I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But uh, that was in 1934. In 1929, this was the day that the, uh, the stock market crashed, Black Thursday, uh, that even though it did not technically start the Depression, the slide into the Great Depression effectively began there. That was the watershed moment. Uh, so that was then. Uh, some other things, 1931, the George Washington Bridge opened in New York, uh, connecting New Jersey and New York, significant at the time. Uh, in 1921, uh, the U.S. created a new tax code around income taxes that fundamentally changed the way the government collected taxes and helped pave the way for the larger 
uh, effective government use of taxation that we see today. Uh, not so nice, 1939 uh, in Germany, this in Nazi Germany, on this day, October 24th, uh, Germany required all Jews over the age of six to wear a Star of David on their clothing to identify them, uh, not only as Jews, but in Nazi Germany, that meant you were an enemy of the state. And uh, certainly that was within the year after Kristallnacht, and uh, the war had already started, and Jews, Hitler had openly blamed for the war, and this just made them even further targets. In 1940, the 40-hour work week was established in the United States. Isn't this amazing? Like all this stuff that we take for granted. Um, Back in 1901, uh, the first successful uh, barrel ride over Niagara Falls happened. Anna Edson Taylor, she was a school teacher. Uh, Her ride took 18 minutes. I don't think the fall took that long. But nevertheless, she did survive it. Uh, There's a whole bunch of, of other ones here, too. Uh, In 1942, the Battle of of El Alamein in North Africa uh, turned the way of the British. It was the first major British victory in World War II other than the Battle of Britain, but their first offensive victory. So that began, that was the beginning of the end of Nazi Germany's control of North Africa. In 1945, the United Nations was created on this day, you know, just the United Nations. Uh, In 1964, the food stamp program in the United States began, uh, which has been fundamental in helping millions of Americans uh, be able to eat, uh, you know, one of those fundamental things. In 1973, when I was just about six weeks old, uh, the Yom Kippur War between uh, a lot of the Arab states in the Middle East and Israel began, a very dangerous war, as well, the one that actually came closest of all the wars there to toppling Israel. Uh, But that happened on this day. Uh, The most destructive typhoon in Philippines history, uh, Typhoon Babs, believe it or not, it was called Babs, happened back in 1998. Uh, In 2002, the Washington Snipers were arrested. Remember that? Uh, Those father and son team going around and shooting people. That was wild. Uh, In aviation, uh, today in 2003 was the last flight of the supersonic Concorde passenger plane. Uh, that was once heralded as the future of aviation, didn't quite work out that way. And then in 2005, civil rights icon Rosa Parks passed away uh, of natural causes at the age of 92. All right, there's a lot more than just that. Uh, But October 24th uh, is kind of a big deal. And it's also a big deal, like in worlds that aren't real, believe it or not, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, for whatever reason, and if somebody knows the answer to this, uh, please let me know, seemed to really like the date of October 24th because it, it exists both in his book The Hobbit, which the great prequel to the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. It also appears in The Fellowship of the Ring, the first book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And uh, it's pretty incredible. Uh, in The Hobbit, for those of you who have read it, Uh, On October 24th is when the elves find out that the great dragon Smaug is dead. It's when the survivors of Lake Town have to move towards the mountain of Erebor, which was where Smaug lived and had conquered the dwarf kingdom. Uh, They move there for shelter, and it leads them into conflict with the dwarves that are retaking that area. And then in The Lord of the Rings, in The Fellowship of the Ring, the first book, and there's the movie version of this has this scene, when Frodo escapes the nine ring race, they're chasing him because he has the one ring of power. 
He safely makes it to Rivendell, where the elves can protect him with their magic. And when he comes out of his uh, unconsciousness, Gandalf the wizard is sitting there, and Frodo asks, where am I and what am I doing? And he tells him, you're in the house of Elrond, and it is 10 o'clock in the morning on October 24th, if you would like to know. So just one of those interesting things, right? And it gets me wondering, uh, <laughs> what are all the other days? What do all the other days have? Uh, and what kind of stories are hiding in them? Now, of course, we all go about our daily lives doing what we need to do. We, we have schedules, we have commitments, we have uh, a number of things that can take our attention. And yet sometimes I think it can be really good to reflect on what may have happened multiple times over and over again on a given day as a way of not just acknowledging the past and honoring the past, maybe learning about the past, but also appreciating our present a bit more. I know for me, it can be a really powerful thing to do uh, particularly when, um, you know, I know people who were born on such days and, and that type of thing, which I do. So uh, anyway, that's what we're looking at. Um, I've got a really good story to kick off uh, the discussion of <laughs> October 24th. Uh, and it's that, it's that Mac Robertson air race. Uh, but if I start it now, I'm not going to get to my first break fast enough. So let's just take our first break right here. Come on back for some October 24th stories here on This Show is All About You. We'll be right back. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor This Show is All About You because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to This Show is All About You, a show about October 24th in history. Uh, but it could be pretty much about any other day, I suppose, too, depending on, you know, just the stories and the details would be different. And there's a larger series of life statements in there somewhere. Uh, but I'm going to go down a list of, of talk about a few of the examples I listed at the top of the show here of some things that have happened on October 24th. And as is fitting for a show that is sponsored by Airway Science for Kids, Starting out with an aviation and aerospace story seems to be a good one. Back in 1934, there was something called the Mac Robertson Trophy Air Race. And this was something. 1934 now, keep in mind. So we're, we're before the jet age. Uh, we are in the age of propeller aircraft. And we're literally only 31 years past uh, Kitty Hawk, the Wright Brothers' uh, first man-powered flight. And so this air race was something unique. This wasn't just planes taking off in the air and doing speed races like happened in Cleveland and other cities that were really famous and really well attended 
uh, back in the 1930s. This was a long-distance endurance race between Britain and Australia. And you had a number of different aircraft manufacturers, all of whom were doing this new, right? This was all innovation. This was all cutting-edge stuff, some of it untested, were uh, putting these planes in the air as part of this race. The, the grand prize was $75,000, which is an immense amount of money, uh, even today, <laughs> but certainly back then. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what the conversion rate would be now. I'm terrible at math. But nevertheless, this was something, obviously, a number of people were, were, felt was worth racing more than halfway around the world to try to do. But it was also about the accomplishment. It was also about celebrating and putting forward the promise of flight. The only equivalent that I can think of that would be today would be imagine if a number of space companies pulled themselves together and said, we're going to each create rockets and we're all going to have a race to the moon. <laughs> and it's all going to start at the same time. And we're all going to do that. Everybody would watch. I mean, everybody would watch that. Um, I know I would, uh, and everybody would be like, wow, this is crazy. Very similar sentiment at the time. Now, a couple of amazing stories came out of that race. First, uh, the legendary uh, pilot Jackie Cochran, who I've talked about on this show before, she started out flying in this race, and yet she was flying a specially made plane. Uh, there was a, a plane called the GB, which is famous in uh, aviation circles for being maybe the most dangerous plane to ever fly. It's a gigantic engine with little stubby wings and a stubby tail on it and uh, with a, a really, really powerful uh, propellered engine. And it was known for killing people in races. And she had a special one made for her called the QED. And uh, Jackie Cochran was one of the best pilots to ever live. And uh, even people like Chuck Yeager uh, said so, uh, you know, people who would know. And. The QED was so dangerous uh, on this flight that even though she was going to take part in this race, she got as far as Budapest, Hungary, and said, uh, I'm not flying this plane anymore. We're done. <laughs> and so uh, fortunately, I think that was probably the wise decision. The idea of going thousands of miles in a plane that is harkened to be dangerous, not a really good idea. That's one. But there's another story out of this that, that was just amazing. Uh, there was one of these planes. It was a DC-2. Okay, the precursor to the DC-3. There was a DC-2 that had gone almost the entire way. It was over Australia. And in the middle of the night, uh, got caught in a huge electrical thunderstorm. Um, massive. And Melbourne was the final location for this. But in the middle of the night, uh, this plane was in distress and radioed out for assistance. And in the town of Albury in uh, Australia, that's where this plane was headed towards uh, they picked it up, and they did the most remarkable thing. First, uh, I, mean, I might get some of these details wrong because I'm not looking at, my, looking at the story here. But one of the first things they did was put out a, pretty much an SOS on the local radio to let everybody in the town know that there was a plane in distress. Now, there is no airport, airfield in this town at all. There is a gigantic race course, though. So that was going to be the focus. So to help the pilots get their bearings, because they had to drop you know, further down out of the clouds to get out of this storm uh, in the middle of the night. Keep in mind, it's past midnight. Right? The town effectively spelled out Albury, the name of the town they were in, using the stop or the streetlights of the town. So they put some out and kept some on as a Morse code interpretation to the pilots so they could see where they were. And effectively, that guided them towards the race course. But the only way they could see where they were going is if they could light that race course. It was not lit. So they put out a SOS on the radio 
asking anybody who was listening to drive their cars down to the race course and shine their lights onto the field to ring it so that the pilots could see it. 80 vehicles ended up driving out to the race course in the middle of the night. First of all, why is everybody up at 1 o'clock in the morning in Albury, 1934 in Australia? I don't know why, but thank goodness these people were. And they, the, the pilots of the plane saw them and were able to land safely in the middle of this storm. Um, the funny, kind of a funny postscript to that, uh, it was raining, obviously, uh, pouring. So the plane got stuck in the mud. And so those same cars that were there teamed up to pull the plane out of the mud uh, in the long run. So anyway, uh, that's an amazing story, uh, one that uh, boggled my mind. And I was today years old when I knew that story. Um, and so again, if I hadn't been looking into October 24th, I would never have known that pretty, pretty amazing story. Um, one that I definitely want to know more about going forward. Um, okay. Another one, uh, 1929, I mentioned the wall street crash back in 1929, uh, of course, black Thursday. And it is seen as one of the most important dates in, in modern American history because of what follows. Now, certainly any historian of the era will tell you that, that what's happened in the decade since is people have called this the beginning of the Great Depression. It, it really wasn't. The Great Depression was a mixture, not just of the crashing of Wall, stock, of Wall Street uh, stocks and commodities futures and that type of thing, but it was also a fold-in with a whole lot of other outside factors that created this perfect storm of economic distress that plunged the nation into a depression unlike any it had ever seen. It had seen a number of them before, uh, previous history prior to the 1920s. American, uh, the American economy was boom or bust on, on many of occasion, and people could get wiped out in these depressions rather easily. In this case, though, you had some of the worst harvests and droughts um, for American agriculture in history up until that point. You had unemployment that was rising prior to 1929. You had a lot of disillusionment, uh, of course, of people still dealing with, with uh, the aftermath of uh, World War I, and uh, there was the disparity, the wealth disparity of the 1920s uh, that really was separating people with wealth from people who did not, and there were many more people without wealth than there were who did have it. So you had a number of those different factors coming together, and then you also had political gridlock. Uh, that made it very difficult, and a government that did not have a history up until that point of intervening in the market economy of the United States. In fact, it was considered something that should not be done, period. It is because of the Depression, of course, that and how bad it gets after 1929, that Franklin Roosevelt, when he was elected in 1932, brings in the New Deal, which, of course, is an unprecedented government intervention into the daily economic affairs and because of the depth of it, the daily, you know, day in, day out lives of Americans uh, in history up until that point. And it helped create the dynamic and a lot of the economic tension that we still see today between, in economics at least, between the degree to which the government should and can be involved in how the economy works and to what degree they should stay out. Certainly, the economic questions right now with inflation and the prices of, of food and things like that. Uh, give some people, and I have led some people to speculate that maybe we're not on the verge of a depression, but maybe a recession. That's possible. Uh, there are a lot of signs, of course, that a recession may happen, but there are many who think it will be fairly light and certainly not like 2008. 
Nobody's predicting anything like 1929 and on. And yet it's a nice reminder, thanks to October 24th, that these things do happen. Uh, these economic uh, downturns and these crashes do happen. It is a part of American history and it's part of the, uh, I guess you could call it the, the rugged economic uh, mindset that we tend to have. Uh, and it, it does matter, right? To what degree free enterprise exists against regulation is a tension that uh, I think is actually good for the country to uh, be wrestling with every single day. Uh, and if you can do it with good faith, which is an open question these days, but if you can do it in good faith, you can actually find really good solutions to work in the short term and the long term. Okay, so there's that day. I can't say I know too much about the George Washington Bridge. I'm not from New York, uh, but nevertheless, that certainly was there. Let's, uh, let's forward a little bit to uh, what I mentioned about what happened in Nazi Germany in 1939. On October 24th, the, uh, the Star of David was ordered by uh, the Reich Chancellery, which ran effectively the Nazi government, that every Jew over the age of six in the country needed to have a Star of David that said Judah, uh, German for Jew, in the middle of it, a yellow star, and have it sewn onto their clothing. And it was meant to identify them um, essentially for ostracism um, and to keep track of them. Now, the year before, in almost exactly a year before this, in November of 1938 was the famous Kristallnacht, or as it's known in English, the Night of Broken Glass. It was the largest uh, anti-Jewish riot pogrom, as they're called, uh, in German history, and it was nationwide. It was something that the Nazis pitched as a, a wellspring of uh, German nationalism, an uprising by the German people against the Jews who the Nazis had spent the previous five years since they came to power and even longer, demonizing as the source of all of Germany's problems. The fact of the matter, though, was it was not a popular uprising against, against the Jews of Germany. It was actually orchestrated by the Nazis themselves. Um, the pretext for it was a, uh, a German diplomat was killed by um, a Polish Jew in Paris whose parents were in Germany. His parents were in Germany, had been persecuted by the Nazis. So he went to the, German, the Nazi German embassy um, remember this is before the war, and shot a diplomat. And supposedly the Nazis said that's what led to this big uprising. But effectively, the Nazis were ready to make this happen. And once that happened, we now know from documents that were captured by the Allies at the end of the war that messages went out after this assassination to all the different police precincts in Nazi Germany, effectively putting all those police forces on alert and effectively telling them it was time to target Jewish businesses and Jewish uh, places of worship, synagogues, uh, community centers, schools, that this was going to happen uh, and that this was going to be the pretext for it. It gets the name the Night of Broken Glass because of all the storefront windows uh, in Jewish quarters throughout Germany that were shattered and littered the ground with glass. After that happened and several hundred people died in that pogrom, a number of Jews, many of whom had been, had been thinking about getting out of the country, decided to try and do so. Uh, the Nazis made it very difficult for them to, uh, to do that, uh, oftentimes forcing them to, to sign over their property uh, up, to, up to 90% of their, their income, their bank accounts, uh, in order to get visas to leave, and they made it very, very difficult. 
By this point, Jews had already been expelled through different laws passed in Nazi Germany from the civil service. Uh, they were, there were no longer any Jewish teachers in universities or, or primary schools. Uh, and they certainly had been purged from all vestiges of the Nazi German government. So what happened after Kristallnacht in that year for any Jews who did not were not able to leave or chose not to leave for whatever reason, staying with family was often a very compelling reason to stay. A year later, less than a year later, on October 24th, 1939, this was the next step. And the war had started by then, and Hitler had gone on the radio uh, and had announced when the war began that uh, Jews were responsible for all of this uh, and had even used uh, the German word for annihilation uh, to say what was effectively coming next. So sadly, one of those uh, things that this day uh, contains as well but nevertheless, uh, one worth noting, and particularly now with, um, you know, there's a lot of anti-Semitism rearing its head again uh, around the world, um, more so in the United States these days, sadly, uh, than in places like Germany, even though it is uh, seem seemingly becoming more vocal again. Uh, and certainly in other areas of Europe, uh, it's, it's becoming even more so. So that's another one. Okay, I'm keeping an eye on my time. Do I have one more? Yeah, I have another story for uh, this point. I want to go back to 1901. Uh, what does it take and what is the process that one would have to go through to think of the idea of going over Niagara Falls in a barrel? Uh, what is the process, the decision-making <laughs> process of that? Who do you talk to? Who are the people that tell you, yes, this is a great idea? <laughs> and uh, and what do you do if you survive it? Uh, certainly there are lots of different stories of this, but as I mentioned at the top, uh, the very first successful uh, stunt, if you will, of going over Niagara Falls in a barrel uh, happened on this day in 1901. A, a school teacher named Anna Edson Taylor rode safely over the falls uh, on the Canadian side uh, in a barrel uh, where she jumped into the barrel from then all the way till falling over the falls and surviving took all of 18 minutes. Uh, I suppose this is a larger question about why do people do uh, death-defying things all the time? Is it, is it adrenaline? Is it boredom? Uh, is it, you know, squeezing the, be the zest out of life even to the point of, of putting it at risk? Uh, it's probably all those things. Could it be notoriety? I don't know. I have not looked into uh, Ada Edson's Taylor's story. Remember, I only had so much time <laughs> to look at all this before I was going to come on and talk about it. Uh, but it certainly uh, points out that uh, thrill-seeking or whatever this is uh, has a long, has a long history uh, going back. There are a lot of people who went over, who've gone over Niagara Falls in barrels and have not survived. You would think that would be a deterrent, uh, <laughs> you know, if if you know, for example, 18 out of every 20 people who went skydiving died in the attempt. You would think <laughs> that people wouldn't jump out of perfectly good airplanes. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong about that, right? Uh, and, you know, speaking as somebody who has, I've done my share of thrill-seeking things before. I used to go bungee jumping um, back before it was heavily regulated when you could just jump with your feet tied together um, off of bridges, right, and get your head dunked into rivers down at the bottom. I used to do that when I was younger and dumber <laughs> when I was back in college. So I can understand it to a degree, uh, but I really needed assurances before I did this that it was it was safe to do, that I had much better than a 50-50 chance of surviving 
Uh, so I don't know whether to take a look at, at Taylor's accomplishment as a really, it's certainly amazing that she survived it uh, and must have been an amazing thing to go through. Uh, but as far as whether I think it was a really good idea or crazy or not, well, it's crazy. But um, I can't decide if I admire it or if I'm just shaking my head at it. And I'm sure uh, wherever she is, uh, Anna Edson Taylor doesn't care what I think. Uh, but nevertheless, that's another one from October 24th. There's more. I'll talk about a few more of these uh, on the backside of the break. So come back for more October 24th uh, interest stories here on this show. It's all about you. We'll be right back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. Talking about all the amazing things, whether we knew about them or not, that have happened on October 24th, going back in history, just focusing on the last 100 years or so. But believe me, there's more. You should make sure you check this out. Uh, and I mentioned a few at the top. I can't talk about every single one of them uh, in detail in the time we have left, but I want to mention a couple of them. Uh, first of all, if you, uh, if you love or hate the 40-hour work week, uh, look back to October 24th. Uh, 1940, as uh, the, when the 40-hour week went into effect, it was actually passed in 1938 as part of the Fair Labor Standards Act uh, that was part of the New Deal that I mentioned earlier that was meant to regulate the amount of time that people could work, and they needed to be paid for that. And, of course, with the 40-hour work week went rules that if you worked employees past 40 hours, you had to pay them more to do so, even if it was in some circumstances, it, it wouldn't be allowed. But nevertheless, uh, a big part of our daily understanding of ourselves, the 40-hour work week. Um, and there are some countries uh, that have less than that now. I believe France still has a, a 36-hour work week. Uh, and there's been some talk of changing that uh, in the American context uh, of late. And certainly as we're coming out of COVID, we already have enough upheaval in how people do their jobs. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, that's where it started. It was back then. Okay, a couple others that I want to make sure that I hit uh, today. In October of 1945, the creation of the United Nations. Um, you know, the United Nations, when it was originally formed, came out of World War II, was part of the discussions between the Allies fighting against Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan about how they would govern and coordinate and communicate effectively in the post-World War II world. They had not done so 
at the end of World War One. That had been a contributing factor to there being a sequel to that war that was even worse than the first one. And the idea was to prevent that type of thing from happening, to create an international body where the great powers certainly would be communicating uh, at all times to prevent conflict for the most part, but also to give forums for other countries around the world to air grievances. Uh, it's the, it's the, uh, the organization that helped bring about new law, international laws around everything from governing war crimes um, to, oh boy, you name it, to uh, establishing uh, bilateral food aid or larger assistance programs for nations around the world to combat poverty, to combat hunger, uh, to combat economic uh, hardship, you name it. Certainly, the United Nations, uh, it, it doesn't have any enforcement power other than the contributions that member nations make to it in terms of military, in terms of money, that type of thing. It depends upon the goodwill and the continued participation of countries around the world. And certainly the Security Council, which has the big five on it, Russia, China, the United States, Britain, and France, going all the way back to the end of the war, they have permanent seats on the Security Council, um, and they can pretty much vote anything up or down uh, with a nay vote, and other countries are rotated in. But that has been a staple part of the larger post-World War II order that lately has been effectively challenged by people like Vladimir Putin. Um, that, as I mentioned last week, Putin's attack on Ukraine has as much to do with trying to throw um, off the old post-World War II Cold War order, things like NATO and the preeminence of the United States uh, strategically around the world, as it has to do with Ukraine. Now, Putin is not saying that necessarily out loud, but he's not shying away from it when the, su when the subject comes up. So the United Nations is part of that. And certainly, uh, the United Nations is controversial in some circles. Um, American conservatives have tended to not like it out of, at the far end of the spectrum, this fear that somehow this international government is going to come out of it and replace uh, American sovereignty. That has never happened, most likely will never happen. Um, and that's, that's served as sort of the whipping post for the United States to pull out of these uh, multilateral organizations where the idea is they could put pressure on us, these other countries, for us to act against our own interest. And uh, so it's controversial there. And there are many others uh, who are widely supportive of it, who sometimes are frustrated that the United Nations doesn't go further than it sometimes does, particularly in denouncing um, the actions of international uh, countries that violate human rights, uh, that violate uh, economic norms, that type of thing. So the United Nations gets a, a lot of criticism from a lot of different directions. And yet, uh, it's been a really important organization on a number of levels, certainly in bringing the voices of countries that are much smaller than those big powers I mentioned to the table to give them a forum for arbitration and problem solving. The United Nations has also created a whole series of organizations, aid organizations under its umbrella uh, that help people, millions of people every day around the world. And if literally if the United Nations was to disappear today, you would have calamity after calamity uh, happening all over the world in terms of people suddenly not getting resources that they need. So uh, that's a big one. So what else? Uh, 1964, let's move forward. The creation of the food stamp program. Uh, back in 1964 on this date, the Department of Agriculture expanded the food stamp program, which uh, had started out fairly small, uh, to include 41 states. Right? And the program works by allowing those in need 
to buy food stamps uh, for $6, which are roughly worth $10 worth of food. And that was, that was how it was. So you could get more for less in buying food stamps. Uh, the new cities that were added back in on this day in 1964 were some of the cities that were hardest hit uh, by hunger and poverty at the time, Chicago, Denver, Baltimore, Minneapolis, and Cincinnati. And uh, certainly it's been something that during the 1960s, this was, of course, the beginning of, of the Great Society, which was Lyndon Johnson's version of kind of an updated version of the New Deal. But uh, it was part of his so-called war on poverty. And it was controversial. This is the same era, era that Social Security and uh, Medicaid, all of these things were being brought to bear as entitlements for the American people passed by Congress uh, with largely Democratic majorities voting in that direction. Uh, it was actually one of the things besides the civil rights movement that helped splinter the Democratic Party back then. But nevertheless, it's something that has stuck. Um, and it has not been without controversy. Certainly those who are on food stamps uh, who, you know, they have a limit on what they can buy, what types of things apply uh, for food stamps. And certainly the best use of those, of course, is always with main staples uh, that are cheaper and can be used more broadly. Um, but I've certainly have seen it and experienced it in my own life, actually, how important uh, these programs can really be. Uh, they, they can definitely, um, they are the difference for far too many people in this country between uh, being able to get by food-wise and, and literally starving. That is not a good thing, and it's certainly not the only uh, thing that can be helpful for combating hunger in this country. And, and, and it's one of those things where I, I believe enough in the ability of the United States um, to do better at these things. Uh, a country this affluent, a country this successful historically, should not have anybody within their borders who are hungry. It really just should not happen. Um, and I realize I'm not the only person saying that, and it's a lot easier to say that than it is to actually make it happen. But nevertheless, um, an uptick in making it happen, I think, would be really, really good. Uh, but again, wonder where would people be without that food stamp program? And it goes back to 1964. Okay. Uh, I mentioned the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Uh, that was one of a series of wars fought against Israel by its Arab neighbors, going back to the establishment of the Israeli state after World War II in 1948. There had been several attacks back. There was the, there was the attack when Israel was created in 48 that the Israelis repelled. There was uh, the Six-Day War in 1967, uh, again launched against Israel, and uh, Israel repelled that within six days and took a number of territories from the countries that attacked it that have continued to be um, a thorn in relations between Arab states and Israel uh, ever since. They still are fought over on a number of occasions. Back in 1956, the Israelis unwisely participated in a British scheme to uh, take the, take the uh, Suez Canal back from the Egyptians and put it back under British control. Uh, the Israelis unwisely jumped into that and launched an offensive against Egypt, which, uh, to help that happen, didn't work out um, by any stretch. It was a disaster. Uh, for the British, but including for um, Israel's um, reputation around the world. But in 1973, uh, Israel's Arab neighbors launched a surprise attack in the middle of the Israeli holiday of Yom Kippur, hence why it has that name. And they got as close as they've ever gotten to uh, bringing Israel to its knees. Um, armies attacked from all directions on Israel, uh, 
airplanes lobbed bombs, rockets were fired in, and uh, it took a while. Uh, but the Israelis were able to withstand that. The United States and other powers around the world effectively stepped in to pressure uh, the Arab states to back off. Uh, and the Soviet Union did as well. And that was you know, part of the larger Cold War order at the time was that was not an area of the world you wanted to see in conflict uh, for the sake of the larger superpower conflict. So effectively that, and then alongside the Israelis recovering finally effectively from their surprise and um, delivering some really rough blows against their neighbors, ended that war. All right, uh, last flight of the Concorde <laughs> on October 24th. The Concorde, I remember being fascinated by the Concorde when I was a kid. It was a supersonic uh, passenger jet that flew higher than other passenger jets and could fly from uh, New York to London in three and a half hours uh, at high speeds. And when it, was, when it first came into service with British Airways and Air France, it was hailed as the beginning of a new age in aviation where eventually all aircraft would be supersonic. They'd be able to fly at higher altitudes, higher speeds, more efficiently, and get people more places faster. That's not how it worked out. Turns out that the Concorde was very expensive to operate. It could only hold about 100 people uh, because of its design. And so seats were at a premium, and so they were very expensive. They were more or less like a, uh, an elite business class ticket today on a major international airline, which is effectively priced out of the range of most people. Uh, but nevertheless, it was something that for, for aviation heads like myself, uh, we always dreamed of flying on. I never got a chance to fly on one. Um, there was a crash of one, sadly, at uh, Paris's airport in 2000 um, that uh, effectively was the end of the program. Um, you know, it, the plane was taking off and struck a piece of metal that was on the runway. It hit the fuel tank and it brought the plane down and everybody on board was killed. And uh, and yet the Concorde had a great safety record despite that uh, for its life. There are a lot of efforts now underway by a number of different companies in the United States and elsewhere to um, to create a new supersonic airplane uh, to maybe rejuvenate and learn from the lessons of the Concorde. Whether that happens or not remains to be seen. Uh, but it is one of those big, elusive aviation aerospace goals out there. OK, finally, to wrap us up um, back in 2005 on this day. The civil rights icon Rosa Parks uh, passed away at the age of 92. Back in 1955, of course, uh, the Rosa Parks, who was already an activist in the NAACP, refused to give up her seat on the back of a bus in um, Montgomery, Alabama, which was required by Jim Crow laws for blacks to sit in the back of buses and whites had the front. She refused to do that, refused to give up her seat. And... She was arrested. This brought a whole lot of attention to Montgomery, Alabama. It was one of the foundational events that created the, uh, the ability uh, and the opportunity for people like Martin Luther King Jr. to become national figures. Uh, and it's seen as one of the sparks of the civil rights movement. And uh, to say that Rosa Parks is one of the most important Americans of all time is, is not a huge, uh, I'm not walking out on a limb to say that. She certainly is. What is so powerful about her, of course, is that uh, she was, as she called herself for most of her life, just an everyday person who cared <laughs> about herself and about other people. And it was one of those acts of everyday courage that are rightly celebrated uh, by most people uh, in this country. Sadly, there's still a lot of people uh, in this country who don't. But nevertheless, uh, for those of us who I believe are on the right side of history, uh, 
she is an icon for a reason. And when she passed away, it was a, a marking of a passage of time that these great events, all the things I've even talked about today, one day will be remembered by just as many people as now remember ancient Rome. None. So it's important to really remember uh, these types of dates, which is why kind of looking up maybe what happened on, on a given day going forward might be a really interesting exercise. So I'm going to challenge everybody who's listening to do that for the next week. Start today, take a look at tomorrow, the 25th, the 26th, the 27th, and see what's out there, what you might remember, maybe what you didn't know, um, and see what lands for you out of that. Because there's something about going through this exercise today that has me appreciating not just the past, uh, but where I am in the present and helps illuminate why I am the way I am and what it is that I care about. So just something to think about. So really appreciate you all spending uh, this time with me to talk a little bit more about this date in history, October 24th, uh, back in time. So uh, I had fun certainly talking about it and looking into it. So make sure if you have any comments or any questions or you go through this exercise and want to share what uh, that was like for you, make sure you reach out to me at wordsbyjdk.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I would love to hear from you. And uh, I'll even share some of your thoughts uh, on the air if you're interested in that. So, uh, and of course, that's where you can find me, wordsbyjdk.com and on Facebook, Instagram, uh, and Twitter. You can find uh, past episodes of this show there. You Also, if you missed any of this episode and any others, you can find this as a podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And again, thank you so much in advance for subscribing and for leaving a review. I really appreciate that. All right, time for the thank yous for this day. Uh, this show is all about you is produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is the in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. Thank you, Eric. Show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airsci.org. And the original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week has to go to Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Bruce Bullard, Pete Connolly, Phil McCoy, Cesar and Martin Gar- Martin Garcia, Ken Zick, Bruce Flommer, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. Special thanks to Fall for finally arriving in the Northwest and removing smoke from the air. Thanks to all the firefighters who've worked their tails off this fire season. Thanks to the writers of the series Andor for taking Star Wars storytelling to a new level of character depth and galaxy building. And to you listeners, thank you. I couldn't do this for you without you. And a special happy birthday today to the October 24th birthdays that are out there, including my dear friend Alona Embrace the freedom of the day, my friend. I love how you live your life. And finally, to send you off into the rest of your week, let's end with this original haiku. Each day of our lives matters to us, to others, and to history. Chins up, everyone.